With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AI Premier League preview show. Though the Reds find themselves on top of the Premier League table, they have little time to revel in their achievements. With games against Napoli and Manchester United on the horizon, so joining me tonight to focus on that latter, so, is it a smaller clash? Who knows? It's, it feels like it's the same way today. I mean, they're, they're, it's still a huge game. But joining me tonight to focus on the latter, uh, we have poet, uh, journalist, author, and musician Musa Okwonga, uh, and host of the AI US pod, Justin Wells. Welcome, guys. Hey, how's it going? Great. No, no, great to have you back, Musa. I mean, it's we find ourselves in very eventful times in every sort of uh, in every sort of aspect of the game at the moment. But um, yeah, we do. Uh, it's it's hard to actually focus on the football. But um, I mean, t- on today's part, I mean, what I just wanted to speak to you about is a fascinating case of, I guess, uh, Manchester United. Even though we might be regurgitating uh, a lot that's already been said, and then it would be great, <laughs> to, great to also get your thoughts as well on on Liverpool and just what what seems to be an unprecedented season, but one which we've sort of only just really emerged from the shadows a little bit into into the spotlight as we take the top place in the Premier League for the time being anyway. So uh, yeah. um, before we get into that, I mean, it's just to want to say, I mean, it's, it's three consecutive draws prior to Saturday's win over Fulham. I saw you guys rise to, to sixth in the table. Um, and Old Trafford actually, for, for once this season, was was treated to a, a rare sort of spattering of goals as well. Uh, I think the first yeah. time we see Mourinho side win a Premier League game by more than a two-goal margin all season, which I guess uh, says something about how progress has been this season. But uh, first and foremost, Musa, just to get your thoughts, I mean, what are your thoughts on the start of the season? And do you think this malaise was inevitable, as Mourinho's suggested, or do you think it's, you know, um, his own resigned negativity um, that sort of, you know, corrupted the campaign from its offset? I think that Manchester United right now are a perfectly dysfunctional club from top to bottom. Um, it's actually remarkable. There's no director of football. Um, the squad is imbalanced, the manager is not motivating the players and seems tactically very much off the pace. The executive vice chairman, Ed Woodward, uh, is not someone whose judgment in the market is necessarily the best, and the owners are uninterested in football. Um, so it, it's, it's really kind of a perfect storm. If, if you had an algorithm to design how much more mediocre <laughs> the season could be. I mean, it's, it's actually perfect. I mean, even the goal difference is indifferent. It's ambivalent. You know, 28 goals for, 26 against, goal difference uh, plus two. I mean, 26 points. It's almost a kind of scientific equation. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty grim at United, I have to say. No, of course. I think, yeah, you mentioned a number of factors there that are undoubtedly playing a part in, in where you find yourselves at, at the moment. I mean, uh, I mean, just to get all the sound bites out there. So, what worst start to a season for 28 years? You know, 16 points behind top spot. Um, and I think one thing that's been heavily sort of focused upon by the media, as it would be, I guess, is the ostracization of um, yeah some of the star created players, which has become a trait of Mourinho's over 
over the years. Um, mm. I guess then where to start then? I mean, where, where would you want to start or where would you want to spend most of your time sort of talking about United's issues here? I mean, Mourinho is, uh, you know, a very prominent figure in that. Um, yeah, Mendes coming out recently saying he's very happy at the club because the club's happy with him despite sort of the, all the, uh, the facts to the contrary. But, um, uh, I mean, just from his own personal failings, I mean, I mean, what have you made of Mourinho this season? I mean, his, People have sort of been talking about his demise tactically and I guess emotionally now as a coach for, for a while. Um, but I mean, just what have you made of him? Well, I think what's really striking is that he was completely unable to manage the momentum, the positive momentum of the United players coming back from the World Cup. So if you look at United players at the World Cup, several of them had really impressive starring roles. Several of them actually were involved in the, the semi-final stage for England, for Belgium, and for France. So in theory, you should be bringing those people back from the World Cup with a massive buzz. Lukaku, Pogba. But Mourinho goes on TV, and the very first thing he does, instead of throwing an olive branch to Pogba, as you know well, the World Cup is the kind of tournament that Pogba gets motivated for because he can work hard in short bursts. I mean, you know, what's that about? That's just, that's completely killing the vibe. And then all of a sudden, these players... I suppose, are dreading returning because they love playing for the national team. They return to Old Trafford and it's gloomy again. It's brutal. It's like sort of going back to school, going back to Hogwarts, but without the magic. And Mourinho has created that mood and he can talk all he likes about players not being motivated. And for sure, Pogba's form has been poor, don't get me wrong. But, 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 Mourinho has been a catalyst in a downward direction for a lot of that. And I think it's completely wild that he has this whole style of, I'm going to pick a fight with the player, and the player will overcome me, and then we'll, we'll be great together. Look, you look at Lucas Torreira, Arsenal, and Gundozi. These players have just come in and played football. So look, there's no conversation about Unai Emery picking fights with them, you know? Um, Thomas Tuchel at PSG didn't go in there and start fighting people. You know, he changed things around, but he didn't go in and like, you know, stamp his foot and fall out with the, the biggest player just so he could, which is what Mourinho does. And it's so basic and reductive. And, and it, it, I think it's boring. I think his demeanor is just, you know, his intensity, his grimness. It, it just must be exhausting. It reminds me of those days when I was working actually years ago, I used to work in the city and, Friends of mine work at investment banks, and the money was incredible, but the boss would always be picking fight with you. And, and that's the reason, one of the reasons they call the wages compensation, because you're being compensated for the toxic atmosphere that you're having to work in. And United right now reminds me of like one of those miserable investment banks. That's probably very apt, especially considering some of the other other issues at the club as well. I mean, just to, just to label on Mourinho for a second then, I mean, yeah, just looking at him and his approach, obviously a manager who has has achieved huge success and he, he's, he's very keen to let everybody uh, remember that, of course. Um, but yeah. you know, from 2010 onwards now, what is it? Two titles, Chelsea and Madrid. And if you look into those in, in detail, there are some exceptional cases around them. One is one of the greatest squads of all time um, and the other yeah. um, had a few really uh, fabulous performances individually from the players that they give out Fabregas in that Chelsea season as well for the first half of things. Um, his approach of sort of focusing on a defense, um, you know, sometimes creating this mentality as well of us against them. And, um, you know, you mentioned falling out with star players, but you're just trying to get star players to commit to, I guess, a more defensive workmanlike approach or contribution to the team than they'd ordinarily yep. be willing to do so. In terms of him being tactically outdated as, as one of a myriad of issues, I mean, do you see that as being the case now, you know, given the way in which 
football has evolved over the past uh, past few years? Well, ab- absolutely. Because look, Atletico Madrid, they play the counter attack, right? They beat Borussia Dortmund, perhaps the former team in Europe, two 0 at home using a classic counter attack style. They had like thirty percent percent possession. They had fifteen shots to I think Dortmund's four. Okay, that is Simeone is the evolved Mourinho or the Helenio Herrera, whatever you call it. You know, and that it shows that that style still works if you have the team buying into it, right? And Atletico have got some very talented players. They've got Thomas Lamar, they've got Antoine Griezmann, players who work very hard. And I think that actually someone like Simeone could get a squad like United's to buy into that ethos, right? So the problem is not necessarily the counterattack. It's the fact that Mourinho is not teaching his forwards dynamic movement. He's not getting them to press at particular times. There's no coordination to the back four. He spent a lot of money and isn't getting the best out of his players. So, you know, it's not... So actually the fact that Diego Simeone is succeeding at Atletico with a style of football that Mourinho once used to play so well is a damning indictment of how little Mourinho has learned in the intervening years. Right, so it's a case more of Mourinho being now uh, a mixture, I guess, of unable and unwilling to coach that style, which... can still be effective if you, you have the players on side, if you have the quality where perhaps you need it. And I guess that would be the point that he would be very keen to deflect to, that he doesn't have the quality that Simeone has or whatever. Um, yeah. But, um, I mean, what would you say is the, is, is the key difference, apart from coaching them, between Simeone and, and, and Mourinho in that? Is it the fact that we come back to this this uh, this bad nature that Mourinho has in terms of, you know, you look at modern-day coaches, and as you mentioned, not only do they not... Uh, pick fights with players or, or tend to do that but they also tend to you know I mean there's the it's overstated but you know Klopp very much friends with with, with the majority of his players you know, there's almost a family atmosphere the same can be said you could yeah. see Emery trying to do that do you think that's an aspect of management and management that he he just can't get on board with well I want to leap in a little bit there because I think the the modern manager and I've talked about this maybe before um, in a different context but the modern manager gets overstated. I mean, Bob Paisley, you know, at Liverpool was very nice to his oh, players. Yeah. So is so Joe Fagan. Bobby Robson was very nice to his players. A multicultural dressing room back then, which was ahead of its time. So I just feel like, um, you know, Mourinho, what he's doing is it's a personality thing. You know, he hangs his players out to dry. You look at um, Diego Simeone. How often do you hear about him publicly chewing out his players? How often do you hear about him really going after a player of his in public? He doesn't really do that. He doesn't really do that. So I just feel like, um, you know, Mourinho gets cut. He's been cut a lot of slack in the past. And they talked about, oh, his mind games with his players. And, but actually, if you look at the mind games, who cares? Klopp doesn't care. Guardiola doesn't care. They don't even reply to him anymore. Do you know what, you know what it reminds me of? Mourinho right now reminds me of, um, he reminds me of Jay Electronica just before Kendrick <laughs> got nominated. Just before Kendrick got nominated for five Grammys. Don't you remember the morning of, the nominations for the, the Grammy Awards, Jay Electronica released a diss track to Kendrick. And Kendrick didn't even reply because by then Kendrick was just on a different level to Jay Electronica. Kendrick wins five Grammys and moves on and like, you know, sweeps the board. And Jay Electronica goes into obscurity. I just feel like Guardiola is Kendrick right now and Mourinho is a rapper who has dropped his best mixtape a few years ago. And that's as good as it's going to get. No, of course, yeah. I mean, to, to pick a less, I guess... Um eloquent comparison as well it actually, uh, uh, actually reminds me to an extent of uh, um, just the modern day phenomenon of you, you know everyone has that sort of whatsapp or facebook um, group that they're still involved with um, where it's, 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 it's usually from a legacy club or 
um, yes. some, some group of schoolmates that you used to be in and you tolerate it because actually leaving it would probably cause more repercussions than actually staying in it. But you, you largely mute the chat and occasionally you go in it and there's usually one person railing against everything in it. Um, and, and everyone else, uh, I can't remember who it was. I think somebody may be mentioning, um, talking about Ronaldo in this way a, a while ago where you imagine lots of, the, lots of the Real Madrid players were also had a separate WhatsApp group. Yeah, where they all chat amongst themselves. It, it, yes, it, it does appear to be that way for managers as well. Because, as you, you rightly say, no one really does get involved anymore. Um, in, yeah, in, I, th- I think was it Tom Williams who said that. He said yeah. he said great player Ronaldo, but you can be sure as hell there's a WhatsApp group he doesn't know about. <laughs> no, <laughs> exactly. I, I think you know, Mourinho is, I think, is beginning to sort of cut a tragic, almost Shakespearean figure because I think he's generally someone who does like to be liked. I think there was a moment with Eddie Howe um, after a game recently where he goes to say something to Howe and Howe is kind of irritated with him. And I just think like he's someone who, I really think he'd love to walk into a room full of like younger managers and kind of be like, look, this is my accumulated wisdom. But they would flock to someone like Wenger in a way they wouldn't flock to Mourinho, if that makes sense. That's quite sad. Considering what Jose Mourinho has achieved in football, that he is not really revered or seen with warmth maybe by a younger generation of coaches or affection because his record in a sense deserves that no i completely agree i mean you can't question his record that is one thing that he's very keen to uh, very keen to point back to but i do i do think you're right in terms of it, it does appear at least with him to be some some sort of a personal crisis and i, I know carl carl anker who, we, who we've had on the pod many times um to talk about united and um he's been talking about united for a while now um, himself yeah. it seems too in terms of um, the sort of journey that Mourinho goes on now at clubs, and, and he was hopeful that the buzz cut meant the end of Mourinho, and uh, of course he's still here after that. And um, it, yeah. it always goes back to the fact that Mourinho is still living in a hotel, out of a hotel, yeah. Room. and yeah. the fact that it's somebody who not only does he not appear to be really enjoying uh, football management too much anymore, um, but doesn't ever seem to have really invested in this in this specific role as well. You know, Irrespective of what he's done on the pitch and you know how vocal he can be in press conferences, he, he never feels like he's really you know, opened his heart to everything um, the way he maybe did in, in his younger days. So I think it feels might. like it feels like an HBO series, doesn't it? Like living in a <laughs> you know living in a hotel and you know you could do an HBO series based on you know a concierge that befriends Mourinho and over time gets to know him and he's living in this kind of like you know this grandeur but he's like king lear without his fall sitting up there on the top floor of this hotel and the results are getting worse and his temper's getting worse and he's not enjoying life you know he's away from his family he's close to them like you know and he's just he's up in manchester and it's grim and it's like he's trying to summon the old magic but can't and there was a very telling moment against uh, spurs early this season when we got you know we got really turned over at old trafford and Mourinho comes out with a back three and you can see he's really trying He's really trying something new and it doesn't work because the new managers are just so smart that they've planned for stuff like that. Do you know, and it's funny because the old Mourinho would plan for when you went a goal down. John Terry would talk about this. You know, we were trained for when you're a goal, uh, when you're, when you're a goal down, how do you set up? When you're 10 men down, how do you set up? Like they literally product, they practice specific scenarios and it's almost like they've, the, the modern managers have taken Mourinho's and they've taken his blueprint and run with it. And I mentioned Simeone before, and I think he's really important to mention in this context because there's that moment when Arda Turan came to Stamford Bridge along with Atletico and they destroyed 
uh, Chelsea and the Champions League knockout stages. They beat them 3-1. And it was wild because it was like, oh, that's the old Chelsea versus the, that's the new Chelsea versus the old Chelsea. Atletico are kind of overtaking them in the drag race. And it was kind of very poignant to watch given what's come since then. And I think so. I think certainly it has a, it, it does appear to be sort of a personal tragedy with Mourinho. And I think, yeah, you're right. It does have, that could be a HBO series. I'm, I'm just trying to rack my brain as to who you'd cast in that role, to be honest, actually nowadays. But, uh, it's, yeah. it's probably <laughs> yeah. one that we can well, dwell on. Yeah. Put out, use, put on the hashtag and then ask people. Yeah. Ask I, will. Regular listeners. I will for yeah. sure, actually. I think it's a, it's definitely an interesting one because, yeah, you can think of a, a number of actors whose own personal past have sort of followed a similar trajectory. So, yeah, it could definitely be sort of a good sort of comeback film for, uh, an actor who's uh, who's been in the shadows for a while, but uh, I mean, absolutely. Moving on to the I think the other main issue that's been talked about a lot as well is obviously the the, the footballing infrastructure at Manchester United and um, Edward was somebody whose name is mentioned a hell of a lot, of course. But in terms of if you're looking at the transfers that have been made, um, how they align with necessarily the different types of football that have been played at Old Trafford over the past what now seven eight years really. Um, yeah. and the lack of cohesion, the lack of you know, coherent vision. I think you know, one thing about Liverpool, and, and it's very easy to, to do specials talking about, you know, Allison and um, Van Dyke and, and the new midfielders who are really exciting and definitely helped us go up a level. Um, but in terms of the planning that's been very, very apparent at Liverpool for a while now, um, it does look like, you know, this is, you know, it's part and parcel of that, of those plans coming together, um, somewhat. And, and of course, those plans have been, have been absent at Old Trafford. I mean, do, do you think there is, surely there is got to be a, a moment where there is a realization of, of how far off track they've, they've, they've gotten? Or, or do you think that there, there is something, um, preventing that and, and, and it's commercial? Yeah, I think, I think, I think there's a, a couple of problems. The problem is primarily the people running the club don't seem to like football or understand it. I, I I generally wonder how much Edward likes Edward would likes football. Do you know what I mean? I don't. When I say likes it, I mean as in, mm. let's say you bought me a ticket to the opera, I would go along because it's the opera and because it's well known, but I wouldn't know how to appreciate it because it's the first I've been. So it'd almost be like treated like a curiosity. So I wonder if to Edward Wood, football is a kind of curiosity. It's an investment, and it's kind of fun, but he doesn't really get it. And the sad thing is, and the crazy thing is that Ed Woodward is the best qualified within that boardroom in, in regards to football. Like he knows it better than the owners who have no clue at all. And or actually, to be honest, no interest. And that really is evident in the football that's produced on the pitch. Because someone like John Henry, for example, you know, John Henry is a sports fan. That's the great thing about Liverpool's ownership. John Henry loves sports. And, you know, the Boston Red Sox actually are the kind of, I don't know if you've been to Boston, but Boston is so much like Liverpool. It's like Liverpool by sea, you know, it's like Liverpool by Atlantic or whatever. Like it's the, the kind of the parallels, even down to the kind of Irish heritage of the people there. And it's such a great cultural fit. And United, by contrast, there's just such a poor cultural fit in terms of the ownership. Um, and they're, they're kind of treating the club like a little you know, or like, a, or like a, re, a revolving credit facility for their other investments. And you can tell that, like, that's apparent from the lack of planning. It's completely no, apparent. No, of course. I think that, I think you're right to highlight sort of that lack of, you know, real love for football in the, in the hierarchy. But actually, as you mentioned with FSG as well, I mean, I'm sure that they themselves have learned a lot about sort of football over the past sort of you know, few years of owning the club or whatever. But, um, you know, 
more than that, they are sports fans, as you mentioned, and, and the parallels do exist there. I mean, but, but do, do you think that, um, I mean, is there any indication that, that there are plans to introduce anybody into that structure, not to replace the work Edward, Edward Wood does commercially, because I think that, that is one yeah. area where you can see he does a fantastic job, but um, inject anybody into that just to help with the football, or, or is even the appetite for that, you think, not there? It's all just been a bit... Um... Uh, it's all been a bit vague. There's all rumours. There's, there's talk about um, was it Andrea Berta from Atletico Madrid. There's all this different talk. But there's nothing concrete. And I think, to be honest, even with the amount of money at Old Trafford, I think that the truly elite people you can recruit are a bit watchful at the moment because there's other clubs where you can get very, very good money. Maybe not quite as good, but certainly almost as good. In some cases, probably slightly better. I mean, Barcelona, the highest paid highest paid staff in the world, playing staff in the world. So you can get great money elsewhere for less drama with more organization. So, you know, that's why these, these rumors are coming to nothing. That's why there's little structure there because who wants to take the risk at this point to United? They're, they're, they're a hugely dysfunctional club. So yeah, I, I think that, that's the real problem. So, so none of the stories I'm hearing, none of the reality, none of the kind of um, the rumors really, have sort of much uh, basis in anything more lasting at the moment, I think. No, I think that's fair enough, yeah. But, I mean, to, to move away from those sort of broader problems then and actually look at the uh, the performances that we've been seeing on the pitch and things like that, I mean, um, before sort of focusing on some in- individual players themselves, but, I mean, I mean, what have you made of sort of um, what, what 2018 Manchester United looks like now in this season? I mean, as you mentioned, Mourinho's own sort of uh, you know, tragic demise really is 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 largely affecting what you're seeing on the pitch on a, on a regular basis. But in terms of styles or patterns of play, I mean, where, right. where do you currently see this United side? The frightening thing is this year that David de Gea is not uh, is not playing as well. He's still pulling off fantastic saves now and again, but his performance level has dipped a little. Uh, perhaps partly because you know it's just hard to maintain that level of excellence for so long but also because of the lack of support and continuity in front of him in centre-back positions. Uh, Luke Shaw is in and out of the team. He's done much better this year, but Ashley Young's in and out. Uh, we don't have that much creativity at right-back because Diego Dolot, uh, a signing, is really fine player, but Diego Dolot's been brought in at right-back but hasn't been given always that much of an audio. Valencia, who is in an attacking sense very limited. Fred, midfielder, uh, was bought from Shakhtar Donetsk for $50 million and is barely getting any game time. Uh, playing with Matic in midfield, Matic looks much slower. He looks off the pace. Pogba's positional sense is not great, but it never was. But the problem is that if you have Pogba in midfield and you don't have mobile midfielders around him, rather like you know Pjanic at Juventus, you know, Pjanic is not a great defensive player, but at Juventus he has these two midfielders around him that shuttle. You don't have that for Pogba at United. So... The style he has, the kind of free-willing style, he's, he's stranded. Uh, and then up front, you've got a very predictable attack with Lukaku going through the middle. And Lukaku, his work ethic's been down. He's not been physically in the best shape in terms of conditioning. He's put on too much muscle mass. So you've got this catalogue, this cocktail of problems. And then on top of all of that, you don't have the attack being taught with any kind of structure. So you look at the, uh, the Liverpool front line, incredibly well structured. They've got their 
you know, room for spontaneity. But within that, there is a structure, you know, there's a structure with what we do and, and with, with, with City as well. There's no contrast. Um, so it's, uh, it's pretty grim, to be honest, Harry. Um, and it's sort of what I would, I would regard as sort of multiple organ failure right now at United in, in tactical terms. No, of course. And I think you mentioned those players who came back from, from the World Cup on cloud nine, really. I mean, and you, you, you've got so much positive momentum there to work with if you were to harness it correctly. And I think you, you can see where some coaches in the league have, have done that and, and, and they've tried to do their very best. Although it's perhaps you could talk about the, the, the physical aspect of, how wise it was to, to throw in so many players from the World Cup, or at least the latter stages of the World Cup, straight into the teams uh, straight away. I, I haven't yet seen the implosion of injuries that I thought I would um, across the league. But um, yeah, no, no, certainly where United are concerned, you would have imagined that yeah, there, there's your opportunity to, you know, to harness it from, from the likes of Lukaku, even if he is you know, physically conditioned as you mentioned, yeah, yeah, um, struggling and, and and Pogba as well, but it, it doesn't seem to have happened. Um, I mean, it's very it's very easy. It seems at, at the moment to pick out all the negatives around United um, on the pitch, off the pitch, as we've been doing so far. But uh, uh, in terms of the the bright spots that you've seen this season, I mean, which um, I mean, where would you like to focus there? I mean, I, I had a few sort of points. I mean, just from the outside, anyway, whenever I yeah. look at United these There's days. A few. Rashford is, is one, Martial um, in patches has been one, and actually Fellaini for me has been one, because to see somebody who's been such a figure of fun and uh, you know, somebody who's been received so much criticism um, over you know, recent years, to actually be seeing a player who, even in this horrible malaise, um, is showing his worth uh, has been you know, quite quite nice to see. Yeah, I, I would actually, I, I would say Rashford less so. Rashford for England, certainly. But I, I still think for United, um, there is severe work to be done in terms of integrating him into the team. Um, so I would say that obviously he's a fine player, but I wouldn't say that he's been a bright spot. I would say that Martial certainly has been. Um, I mean, he's scoring at a ridiculous rate, uh, considering the minutes. I mean, his goals and assists per minute are just tremendous at the moment. And he's a player who, because he's so technically gifted, requires very little in the way of tactical systems to thrive. Um, Fellaini was tremendous uh, against Brazil in the World Cup in the knockout stages. It was such a brilliant performance by him. And so I think ever since then, he's just been on, on a, at a great level and fully deserved his contract extension. I compared him actually a few years ago to Massimo Ambrosini, the player at um, AC Milan. You know, very sort of durable, decent pass completion, defensive stopper at the back of midfield. Uh, an aerial force, and I think he has come into his own in that respect, not as accomplished as Ambrosini, but certainly an important squad player. I think he's still played too much, unfortunately. I'd also like to give a shout to Luke Shaw, uh, because Luke Shaw has really come through the maelstrom with Mourinho, and now is set to be offered a longer-term contract. And that's just tribute to how well he's handled Mourinho's ego and 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 his, va- his, his vagaries of mood. So yeah, Luke Shaw as well, I'd add into that. No, absolutely. I actually completely forgotten about Luke Shaw just in the way in which he's yeah. Yeah, definitely come through the the full spectrum of sort of Mourinho's mood and uh, treatment. Of course, really. Yeah. I mean, yeah, really has has had a tough time. So the fact that he is going to be offered a new contract, yeah, I mean that's um, should be the poster boy for somebody who's come at the other end. I guess you could say absolutely the same for one yeah. matter uh, slightly yes, as well. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. No, great shout too. I mean, one matter in a sense is one of the great survivors of Old Trafford. Um, and it's remarkable he's found himself so much prominence under Mourinho again. And now I think, unfortunately, 
he's going to be used as a bit of a wedge against Pogba uh, because of matter in the team and playing and creating. It's easy for Mourinho to say, actually, we don't need Pogba at all, which they do, but it's it's a convenient way for him to drop him and keep keep him out of the picture. Yeah, no, I think as well. I think it was Carl um, as well, actually, who actually mentioned about sort of the, the current situation at United can be summed up by the fact that one matter has uh, temporarily paused the blog which is oh gosh, yeah. which is a, a real, <laughs> real sad moment. Even for a Liverpool fan, who yeah, I mean, I I need to maintain the the animosity towards United that everybody will expect from me on this pod. But I mean, one matter. I've always had a very very hard time having any dislike towards one matter, even when he's scored. Well, he's just he's a nice boy, isn't he? Yeah. One matter is the kind of person that if he was dating your sister, you'd just be like, just let me know the wedding date. Do you know what I mean? He just he's <laughs> he's just he's just a nice he's a nice nice boy. One matter. Um, and that's that's great to see. No, yeah, he, uh, he's someone who you, you, you certainly feel, yeah. Despite being sort of quiet in certain certain spaces, you could imagine he'd be an important figure in the dressing room, even in some of these sort, sort of tough times that you're going through at the moment. Um, I mean, well, actually, he's he's more likely to cause you trouble at Anfield than Pogba is, funnily enough. Yeah, um, but, given his record against um, uh, Liverpool, and he, he he's just a fine player, and obviously in the in the fantastic match he played at Anfield a few years back. So, yeah, he's a player that can find pockets of space in really great areas. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy for one matter as well. One player I, I did just want to mention because it's it's sort of startling to the degree in which he's off the radar now and actually news about him, his fitness, um, you know, his whereabouts. I mean, it, it, it doesn't seem to even register much much conversation anymore, which which I guess really highlights how how much of a... Um, a flawed move it, it it appears to have been, but Alexis Sanchez. I mean, what's what's happened with Alexis Sanchez? I mean, this season you, you could say he's not the same player, which I think is certainly apparent. But I mean, uh, surely there, there there were greater plans for him this season than what we've seen. I think it's like Shevchenko when he went to Chelsea, burnout, heavy legs. I I really worry if it's burnout because the intensity of football. It's not just the, the amount of games that Alexis Sanchez was playing. It's the intensity he played them at. And what happens is it's a bit like when an iceberg finally melts. You know, it crumbles. It doesn't just melt like, in, you know, the final stage of the melt of a, of a glacier or an iceberg. It just like, it just peels away. It falls into the ocean. And I think that Sanchez's physical conditioning in terms of what he can do, I just worry if it's not the same level anymore. I wonder if he can push himself that far anymore. I just wonder if he's lost that gear of intensity that made him so thrilling at Barcelona and, and Arsenal. No, certainly. I mean, there, there's definitely parallels you can make in terms of players that you'd be looking at right now, and you can see their physical declines happening. Not, not to them maybe as as dramatic an extent, but I mean, Suarez is one who, who obviously comes straight to my mind in terms of his own way of playing. And you can see even at Barcelona now, whilst he's still dreadfully effective. Um, Somebody who's starting to, you know, the way in which they play football is starting to take its toll on their body. Um, another player as well, I mean, to mention one of Sanchez's countrymen, Vidal as well. I mean, you look at how he used yeah, to play yeah. and how he plays well, now. Exactly. And, you know, it's funny because Vidal was just a great signing for Barcelona as a kind of plan B. And I think that Sanchez was signed as a plan A to supplant Martial. And if you look at Martial now, you're like, why did he even buy? Sanchez, like Martial's a better player. He has, uh, you know, his peak is several years ahead of him. You know, Mourinho just got that badly wrong. Why didn't he just? Can you imagine Guardiola buying a player like 
Sanchez before he'd got the best out of a player like Martial. Like he bought Sané, developed Sané, and then bought Barres. You know, he didn't stop the process halfway through. He developed, you know, he's developing Bernardo Silva now, who's already a great player, but he's made something different. So, you know, Mourinho's, um, the panic in buying Sanchez almost seems like he bought him so that Guardiola couldn't have him. And now, funnily enough, it seems like Guardiola's dodged a bullet. And actually, Mares would have been far better suited to United uh, because Mares requires much less coaching. Having said that, I still think he'd be pretty unhappy if he'd gone there to Old Trafford. No, of course. I mean, that Sanchez um, sort of, I mean, the situation with Sanchez is probably another um, situation. You could easily turn it into a HBO drama as well. <laughs> again, I'm not sure who you'd, who you'd cast for that. But again, somebody Perfect. looking looking out of a hotel room longingly at what could have been and to the Sanchez yeah. looking towards the Etihad um, and you know, potentially what, what his career could have been like if, he, if he'd moved there. Uh, to move on to the game itself, then, I, mean, I mean, this weekend, uh, I remember last time, um, the reverse picture of this last season, there was so much hype around it. I mean, Sky Sports were very, very keen to hype up Red Monday, you know, this, this huge clash that it was going to be. And Mourinho, as he is, he's still able to do, I think, in, in, in one-off games, although maybe that's starting to leave him a little bit more uh, these days, yeah, he, he managed to kill that game completely uh, in terms of you know, not allowing it to become an open contest. Um, I mean, do you have the same confidence in his ability to do that this time? I mean, of course, it's largely uh, it was dependent on the brilliance of David de Gea um, as yeah. well, which has uh, often been very useful. Um, but do you even expect him to try and tackle this fixture the same way? Yes, I do. Of course, I do. I, I do look. He's done it two years running, in fact, hasn't he? Didn't he do it with yes. uh, Herrera? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. He did it with he did it with under Herrera. Um, he basically had Herrera, I think, got one like fourteen tackles or something um, in in the game two years ago, and just played this incredible defensive performance. But we just basically sat, we just camped, you know. We just I I, I expect the same thing to happen um, at Anfield. I, I don't expect us to come out and play high intensity, you know, hit you and then hit you on the break like we did at Old Trafford end of last year and the end of last season and, and then kind of like sit on the lead. I don't expect that to happen. I expect us to kind of just come in and, and just park the bus on the opening stage and really just kind of, you know, he, he would take no greater pleasure, Mourinho, than stopping Liverpool's momentum um, and, al- and allowing City to get those points, uh, allowing City to kind of leapfrog you on goal difference. He'd, lo- he'd love nothing more. I was going to say that, yeah, in terms of actually it being set up for him, sort of the perfect, the perfect situation for Mourinho to come in and, and spoil the party. I mean, it, it does, it does seem to be there. But, um, so it, in that case, I mean, is there anything in, in particular that you'd expect him to switch for this game? Or do you think it's really going to be a rinse and repeat of sort of some of the lineups that you've seen so far? I just think it'll be a four, three, three or a four, two, three, one with an ultra defensive, uh, midfield setup. Um, wouldn't be surprised to see sort of you know not not McTominay but you know that kind of Fellaini, um, Herrera, you know some some combination. I mean some com- no Fred. I don't think Fred will start. I don't think Pogba will start. I think Matt will be the attacking player that he has um, as the ten. He might put Martial out there with Rashford and then behind Lukaku. Then I think we'll have like a, a midfield a defensive access of sort of Fellaini Matic or Matic Herrera and just really lock down that midfield 
and then just challenge challenge uh, Liverpool to play through them. The thing with Liverpool this year, and we haven't discussed them enough, to be honest, because I think they're a great side and I wanted to say more about them, is that Liverpool this year are just such a beautifully balanced team. And looking at the league table and Liverpool's record so far actually reminds me of um, actually reminds me of the 80s, to be honest, the mid-80s. You know when you have that Liverpool team that wouldn't necessarily hammer teams early in the season, but they'd get an, av- they'd get an average of, like, let's say, sort of 2.2 goals a game, 2.1, 2.2 goals a game, and they'd really sort of take flight after Christmas. And they're already looking ominously balanced and relentless. What I would describe, it's funny, and, and I say this with the greatest possible respect, when I look at the Liverpool team now, I think of two words immediately. The first word is restraint, and the second word is balance. And when I say restraint, I'm like, this is a... Watching Liverpool is like listening to uh, an opera singer who stays within their range. They don't go and hit the really high notes. They're just like punching through each performance. And you can tell they've got like another like gear, but they don't go into it because that that gear is where the problem lies, where the chaos lies. And what I love about Liverpool... And what I like about Klopp, I don't think Klopp has the same kind of ego. Don't get me wrong, I think Brendan Rodgers was great in many ways. But Brendan Rodgers had that kind of ego where he wanted to make a demonstration of Liverpool's power. He's like, we're going to go out there, we're going to hammer Chelsea, we're going to beat them 4-0, make a demonstration, instead of going, we just need a point from this match. Whereas Klopp, Klopp in his current incarnation is like, let's take the damn point, right? Let's get the point if we have to. Let's not try and show them up. Let's treat this as another fixture, and this is just one more game We'll grind it out. I mean, look, I know that Burnley, not the team that Burnley were before, but the way that Liverpool handled Burnley compared to how they've handled them before, you know, like Liverpool playing Burnley was like a trauma. You know, it was like a massive 90-minute trauma every time they played them. You know, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Everyone's oh, got course, their team. Yeah. yeah, everyone's got their team. Whereas now, Klopp is like strictly business. And I've got to say, I'm loving that. I love the way that he uses his squad, the way he's integrated Shakiri. Um it's just great. And the way that, you know, Naby Keita is obviously still to take flight because of injury issues, but whatever, and continuity. But players like, you know, Wijnaldum are kind of coming in and playing roles. Lalana looked great the other day. Great through pass um, for, I think, Salah's third goal. You've just got a Liverpool squad that is beautifully balanced. And that is why, that is why when Liverpool play um, against United at Anfield, I think they'll, they'll be more patient than we've seen them for a very long time. And that's going to be worrying for Mourinho because traditionally at Anfield, Liverpool have flown out of the traps. But I think that Liverpool this time at Anfield are going to play and just try and pick United apart. And they've got the tools to do that now. No, yeah, it's, it, it is very interesting to hear you say that, actually, because I think it's, it, it's been something that Liverpool fans themselves have been trying to reckon with as well, but just in the way in which we, we've been used to that football where it's, you know, you, you use the opera singer, but... You know, that high note was all we could do, and we it was right. chaos was where we lived, and we and we had to we had to unleash that in order to actually stand a chance to compete with some of the best teams in the league. Um, because when it did settle, uh, we couldn't you know dictate a game, we couldn't control a game on the ball, uh, and certainly defensively, we didn't have much help, you know faith in our defence to withstand too much pressure. And of course now, I mean. Uh, uh, Van Dijk and um, Gomez and, and Alisson are, are three players who, of course, got huge amounts of attention in recent um, in recent weeks throughout the season just because of how they performed. I mean, uh, j- just briefly before we do get to predictions sure. and things like that. I mean, what have you made of 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 their performances? Do you, do you think it's overstated sort of the impact they've had, or or, or or is it a good example of just you know, buying the best possible solution for a position um, and it, it paying dividends? 
Did you mention Gomez just then? Yes, Sorry, of course, did you? Yeah. yeah, he's been he's been terrific, Gomez. Um, Joe Gomez has been great. Allison, absolutely. Uh, Van Dyke is just oh my goodness, just you know. Here's the thing: the way that Liverpool play with that high line, only the very very elite centre defender doesn't get caught at. Because you know, Lovren is still a very good player, but playing that high line, anyone gets exposed apart from Van Dyke because he's just so good. He's just so good and he allows you to do so much. Technically gifted, distribution is fantastic. And you see now why that money was paid for him. It's interesting because it was 78 million it was paid. He was paid. But then you look at how different positions in history have been the most expensive, right? So the strike could be 80 million and you, you pay 78 million for a centre back like Van Dyke. You think, well, actually, to that team, he's worth that money because he enables everything in front. You know, and actually, Van Dijk was a break with Klopp's previous frugality. You know, it was like, we're never going to spend that kind of money. Manchester City, they've done it and they've been rewarded for it. It's, it's um, not the same way with Alisson as well, to be honest. I mean, I, I, I was stunned when we actually put that offer in for, for a goalkeeper. Right. Yeah. And he's, but he's been amazing. He's been, you know, he had one, like, you no, know, one hiccup, but that's just, that's just goalkeepers. Um, and, and, and players have their moments, but he's been absolutely amazing. His passing, his handling, his assurance. But one thing I want to say about Liverpool as well is, I don't just want to praise the um, defenders in terms of the backs because you've got to praise Firmino. Firmino is just gold. You know, it doesn't score the most goals, and that's we've discussed that before in different contexts, um, me and other friends, about how Firmino, you know, his, it's almost like his third responsibility is to score goals. His second responsibility is to provide assists for others, and his first responsibility is to defend from the front, win the ball back. And with Firmino there, it's just... A different team, Liverpool. It's a different team. He sets the tone, and that's why you conceded what six goals in in part. Yeah. In fact, for me, yeah, for, it's astonishing to have that person bearing down on you when you're trying to play out from the back. It, it just then it it just it's like having an extra defender or an extra two defenders because it unsettles everything you're trying to do. And unfortunately for me now, against you know United centre backs. At least one of them isn't the best at playing after that. You know, Chris Smalling is always playing the ball to fullbacks. You'll see that uh, on at on, on, um, uh, the weekend. The way that Smalling plays, for, Smalling is very, very uncomfortable playing the ball into the feet of the midfielders and spreads it wide. And Firmino will leap on that tendency. He will absolutely love that. So that, that in terms of a key battle, I know that's something we might discuss in a bit, but in terms of a key battle, that's absolutely key right there. Yeah, is it... Firmino is also a very interesting case as well because he's actually been somebody this season that Liverpool fans have looked at and thought he's he's actually struggled to um, adapt to the slightly different way in which we've been playing because I know it's been highlighted that Salah's position has changed really you know, from from being a player who primarily, despite all those goals, was on the right um, last season yeah. when we were playing four three three, and as we've sort of you know, gradually introduced Cater and uh, Fabinho and um, and the fact that really. They traditionally played as a two, and it's going to perhaps changes into a four-two-three-one again. Th- things move around all uh, um, things move around all the time, but uh, I think Firmino has has been somebody who's who, who seemed to suffer from that change a little bit as he accommodates. Um, it becomes this number ten really that he's he's not really played for a while since his Hoffenheim days. So it's been it's been um, curious to see how he's how he's dealt with that. But it does seem with Cater coming into the team, adding that extra creativity, um, right. And, and Fabinho adding that structure behind him, that he you know, that pressure has eased up on him a little bit. But the, the yeah. two either side, they're the ones who seem to be getting the most attention this season because Salah 
back to his yeah. razor sharp best, it seems, or, or on his way. Yeah, yeah, and, I uh, think, and, yeah. And Mane, um, I mean, uh, do you think they're going to be the obvious sort of um, uh, players that you'll be you'd be worried at um, worried about this weekend, or is there anybody else? I mean, you, you might you've highlighted Firmino there already. Yeah, I think that look, I think Mane is always dangerous, and I've got to give him a shout out for his outstanding performance in the Champions League final against Madrid because he. After, you know, uh, Salah went off, I think he carried on taking the fight. So I, I think that he's, he's always going to be a factor. I think Mane is still underrated, actually. Uh, so he will be a factor. Um, but with Liverpool, they've just got so many ways they can hurt you. So I, I wouldn't want to say that was necessarily a kind of a, a key, a key issue. I, I would say as well with Liverpool, there could be a lot of joy down our right hand side because we don't attack that well. We defend pretty well from the right back spot, but we don't play out that well. So that will give you a lot of room to stay high up on us on the right and actually can get in behind us on the left flank too with um, Ashley Young. So we've got a lot of, uh, of, um, of gaps to plug, unfortunately. Ashley Young is actually somebody I, I, I remember last time around. He, he was so effective against Salah. It was actually disparity to watch just how... Uh, how much discipline he showed his, in his, in his performance. So I think, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how we line up and whether or not we, we do do what I think Neville and Carragher were alluding to, whereas we don't switch back to, uh, the 4-3-3, which, which, which we tended to do in some of the bigger games. Um, yeah. And actually do go with, you know, the addition of Shakiri in there to be a bit more creative, to add even more creativity because we know what, we know what you're going to do, for example, in terms of yeah, right. sit in and try and frustrate us. Um, all right then, Musa. I mean, just conscious of time here. I mean, I mean to wrap on your side before we can bring in Justin around, around yeah. the Liverpool side of things. What would your prediction be for the type of game we're going to see this weekend? And then uh, to put you on the spot, just ask you for a score prediction as well. Uh, I think that United will try to frustrate. I think we'll try to frustrate you, um, but I just think you have too much firepower for that to be effective. And I think it will be. I think you'll win 2-0. I have to say, I think you'll win 2-0. I think you will get an early goal and then a late goal as we're chasing it. I think, I think we're going to lose 2-0. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's how I feel about it. Yeah, yeah. You'll definitely win some friends in there. I, 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 I mean, you've already sort of said some very nice things about Liverpool throughout the pod anyway. As a United <laughs> fan, so I think people will definitely be be happier around that. Listen, but... if, if, we're, if we're not self-aware about what we're doing or where we are, then we can't improve. And I, I just think that's it. You know, we, you know, at the end of the day, we are a football club that has a lot of work to do. Liverpool are doing the work. They're playing very compelling football. And it's just remarkable. They are top of the league. You consider, consider the season that Manchester City are having and the fact that Liverpool are above them just says everything about how well they're playing. I just think, you know, I know Liverpool fans are frustrated with style. It feels more restrained, but this is the stuff of championships. This is how it looks. If you're looking this good going into the Christmas break, then you've got to be happy with that. You've got to be happy with that. Um, no, of course. Yeah. I, I think that definitely aligns with what we're saying um, saying on Anfield Index. I mean, all, all, all the underlying stuff looks looks fantastic for us. I think it's just right. just getting over that anxiety that we have as as, as Liverpool Yeah, of fans. course. It's been a while, yeah, of course. Mm. But, you know, that's, that's natural. But, you know, I think you guys will be there and thereabouts absolutely right to the very end. Um, so, yeah. And just one point um, before you do go, Moose, I just, just wanted to ask sure. you if you have anything to plug. I, I, I know you're constantly releasing a lot of work, whether it be the music, <laughs> yeah, whether yeah, it be yeah. the pieces you're writing. Is there anything that you wanted to particularly draw people's uh, attention to? 
Um, I suppose, really, uh, if anyone's interested, check out my stuff. I mean, I do a football podcast um, called Rabona. It's R-A-B-O-N-A. We need to get you on at some point, actually. Um, and I also have a band called BBXO, uh, which is like sort of like, I guess, like sort of the streets on Massive Attack type stuff. But primarily, really, um, yeah, if you're interested in what I've had to say, um, I'm always writing about politics, football, other stuff. So, yeah, I'm just on Twitter at Okwonga. It's at O-K-W-O-N-G-A. So, yeah, if you've enjoyed what I've had to say, yeah, come come check out my stuff and I hopefully will send stuff you've got of in, uh, you find of interest. Yeah, certainly encourage you to do so. Thanks so much, Mr. for coming on. And uh, Thank you. And most importantly, may the best team win at the weekend. Of course, absolutely. Bringing Justin in to talk about Liverpool. I mean, uh, Justin, there, there, there have been worse times to be a Liverpool fan. Let's face it. I mean, uh, obviously with that win over Napoli last night, um, the Reds have now sort of negotiated their way into the last 16 of the Champions League. Um, yeah, not bad considering that they've managed to get out of a group with Napoli and, uh, and PSG. Um, and we, we find ourselves, uh, the lofty heights of the you know, top of the Premier League with just a small sort of fact as well that we're the only unbeaten team in the league. So, uh, um, not, not, not too bad at the moment, Justin. But I just wanted to ask you what your thoughts are on, on this current form that we've seen from the side and, uh, recent performances against Bournemouth and then, of course, the Napoli result last night. Well, I, I just want to start by saying, as far as, uh, you know, the Champions League, thank God we're not playing on Thursday nights. Um, we've seen that wreck teams in, in the league, especially later in the season as you get deeper and deeper into the Europa League. And, uh, you know, as much as, you know, you have, uh, AI stalwart Dave Hendricks saying, play the kids. If, you know, if we were to get into the Europa League, you know that Klopp would have taken that competition seriously because he would have seen it as a legitimate opportunity to win silverware, which has been the one thing that seems to have eluded him so far. So um, on the perspective of the Champions League, it's great to advance, if only for the fact that it gets us out of the Europa League, but also just on the merit of you want to be in the, the knockout stages in the Champions League. That's, that's, that's where you start to see, like, you know, who, who do I want to play? And you realize that they're all good teams. So the poison you're picking is playing, do you want to play Barcelona? Do you want to play Porto? Do you want to play Real Madrid? Do you want to play Dortmund? Do you want to play Juve or do you want to play Bayern? Those are all good teams. So, you know, that that's that's the competitions you want to be in it, it, as a Liverpool supporter because that that is Europe's elite. And make no mistake, we're back amongst Europe's elite. We just need to win something to prove that. Um, in the league, the Bournemouth, the Bournemouth game was so encouraging. Um, seeing, seeing Mo Salah come back and finally just show a team that, I will wreck you single-handedly is the one thing that we've really been missing from uh, our performances lately. And uh, he's done it now twice in two games against uh, a Bournemouth team. That's really not bad. That's, that's a good side. They spent well over the summer. Um, Eddie Howe's a good manager. And we went, we went down to their, you know, down to their stadium, a long trip and beat them worse than any team has. And the, you know, they played against the, the top half teams. Well, they were good against Arsenal. They were good against city. They were good against United, and, you know, as much as I want to try to maybe take some shots at United, which I plan on doing over the next few minutes, um, they're still better than almost – they're still better than 13 teams in the Premier League. No, of course, yeah. I think we there, there, there's no way that we should be belittling uh, Bournemouth at all, I think, and um, to go along with their results as well. I think they're actually one of the most creative teams this season as well. So I think the fact that we managed to restrict them to so little as well was really a – a credit to the team, and and as you mentioned, seeing Salah in this razor sharp form really um, looks like he's got a point to prove to you know all these nameless critics at the start of the season. It looks a little bit like that, and um, 
Steve Cook did his best, let's face it, to sort of rake his Achilles. Um, and last night as well, I think up against Koulibaly and Rui, I mean, that's a, that's a very physical you know, challenge there. And, and once again, we see him rising to that challenge. Um, the performance against Napoli then, I mean, we, just to touch on it a tiny bit before we do move on, I mean, we obviously saw the return of that midfield three that many people were dreading, you know, just based upon sort of the results that we had with with them in previous games, especially a Champions League um, away from home, obviously losing every single game that we that we had. Uh, how did you think they performed last night? Because obviously the, the running stats have, have come out and they really did put a shift in. Oh, they, I, I thought I thought all three of them, you know, really, really did their job. Um, I think that there's like, you know, and I hate this because every single time I end up uh, talking to you about, you know, the preview pod, there's one name that always comes up before anybody else's. And I guess it's the, uh, I guess it's the armband, but Jordan Henderson, I think was the biggest one, you know, that we're, we're that people are, are fearing be, you know, seeing in that type of game, because you know what you're going to get out of Milner, which is just running himself into the ground. You know that Genie is either going to pull his will he or won't he show up, but you know that Jordan Henderson is going to be all over proceedings in pretty much every game he plays just because of how often he's going to touch the ball. And Yesterday, I think uh, in the early going, I think there was not a ton of purpose in what he was doing, but I think he really grew into the game. And in that second half, I thought he was he was quite good. And if that second, if he can play like he does in that second half, um, you know, week in, week out, I think you find a lot fewer people sitting there trying to uh, you know to lampoon the captain because he was very good. He was very you know he he helped us stay compact. Um, Napoli, as much as they were you know were running at us and trying to create chances, I don't feel like they created a ton. And, you know, the midfield had a lot to do with that. And I think Jordan Henderson just did a really good job breaking up play in the second half. And he actually, you know, seemed and, and I'd, I'd actually say this across all three midfielders. Milner started passing the ball forward. Genie got into advanced positions and got himself into shooting positions. Henderson moved the ball forward and kind of showed a bit more purpose and pace. And if that game felt more like the kind of pace that we played Roma in the semifinal last year where we were all over them and just jumped on top of them and didn't let them play then it did feel like the you know, the, P- the the PSG game in Paris or even the PSG game at Anfield uh, because the PSG game at Anfield you know both teams were good both teams were attacking but the game was very stretched and open we cut down how open this game was and I think if you actually you know look at the the, the XG for it like you know 3.4 to I think like 1.3 or something that that's that's pretty dominant yeah no of course I thought that physically I thought we really did sort of make them struggle and I, I thought you could tell around 56 60 minutes even when they did have a good patch um for 10 after they'd made a, a number of changes I, I did think you, you could see them struggling to compete with it physically um and, and I mean I mean that's really something that, that we've wanted to see all season because I think whilst we found a different way to win you know and relied upon other aspects of our strengths now in terms of our defensive solidity. We've not really seen that sort of ability just to purely outwork a team um, into submission. Um, although I have to admit, early on, I was worried about just how much space there was because it did, it did appear that there was, there was a ton of space early early doors. But then second half, I think, yeah, for sure, I think um, uh, Ginny, who I thought was pretty strong all, all game, but Henderson and Milner especially seemed to seem to step it up and be and be generally more aggressive, which I think is probably when they're at their best. So um, still staying on the topic of midfield, I mean, one thing we've seen more of lately in, in the past few league games as well, of course, is you know Klopp reverting to this 4-2-3-1, and that's you know, included the introduction of Naby uh, and Fabinho as well, which has been really, really positive to see. Uh, and lo and behold, 
with a run of games. Both of them look to be you know, gradually showing their you know, their qualities and uh, and value to the side. Uh, how have you um, sort of felt about their introduction? And um, do you, are you on the side of this has actually been very well timed by Klopp here, or it's just worked out this way as they sort of both come into the team over the over the festive period? I'm going to give Klopp the benefit of the doubt. Uh, yeah, fair. Everything, every, everything he's everything he's done as far as planning goes seems to be that he's trying to get us to peak now, right? And some of it I think is probably coincidence because luck's important. But guess, but but I, but I'll always, you know, I'm, I'm always one to say that you take luck on your side and that you put yourself into positions to make luck. And I think Klopp's done a great job with that. Um, I think it's been frustrating for us as fans because you know we're not inside his head. So we don't necessarily know when he's going to unleash things. And, uh, you know, he seems to have now given Fabinho and Keita more of a run out. Um, the one thing I have noticed about Keita is how he's been utilized is he's, he's never, he hasn't still yet really played in the middle of midfield. It seems to have been playing, uh, or actually that's not necessarily true. He played in the center of midfield against Burnley. It just seemed that against, um, Bournemouth, he was used more. As a, as a left winger, um, where he was drifting inside, but he was definitely seemed to be, he was definitely seemingly playing in the type of spaces that you'd usually associate Sadio Mane with. Uh, so I would like to see if, you know, if it's going to be, you know, Keita and Fabinho in midfield, I would actually really like to see, um, you know, Keita used as a full midfielder and not kind of this shuttling, you know, is he an eight? Is he a winger? What's his exact role? I kind of want to see him just running at teams from the center with the entire pitch around him, because I think that's really where he's at his strongest. Um, I thought against Bournemouth, Cato looked good. I think against Burnley, Cato looked great. Um, but I think Fabinho is just also just he, he's he's incredibly good. Um, he's just so his limbs are just so long that he's really difficult to pass around. And he seems to even though he's not necessarily getting around the pitch faster than anybody else, he still gets to every single spot he wants to be in, particularly defensively, and particularly also further up the pitch defensively. He seems to bias about six, you know, six to ten uh, yards uh, of field position while he's playing, and just he, he seems to just choke other teams from being able to get out of their own half. Uh, you know, I, I can't picture anybody who looks like they're a better fit for a Klopp Gagan pressing team than him just because of his you know, tactical nous and, uh, and and his desire to just mm. tackle. No, for sure. I mean, I, I, th- I think you can see as well, sort of with the running games, he, he, he seems more comfortable. Uh, even in last night's cameo, I thought that uh, um, a bunch of very useful sort of defensive clearances, headers, winning those headers late on to help you know, help relieve any sort of pressure he could do. And, and then when he needed to clear it, really just hoofing <laughs> it clear, um, as was sort of the, the requirement uh, in yesterday's game, but also, yeah, I completely agree with you in, in terms of his, his performance against Bournemouth and um, what we've seen from him in, in the league so far. It does appear as though he is going to help us um, just maintain that pressure on opposition sides in terms of just they're not able to get out whatsoever. Um, and then, of course, it, I, I do agree with you in terms of Naby. If, if we play him centrally and just allow him to cause as much havoc as possible with, with, with the footballing ability we know he has. I mean that, that that's one thing I'm very much looking forward to ahead of the um ahead of the weekend and we'll come back to that but um just one point before we do get on to talking about the weekend um and I guess it does cover across actually towards that match as well um Matip of course ha- ha- had come into the team following Joe Gomez's injury 
Um, we've seen Joe Gomez sign a new contract as well, which is very encouraging. Um, but of course, Matip coming in you know, and putting in some really good assured performances alongside Van Dyke, and uh, even last night I thought he was excellent as well. Um, you know, great on the ball as well, coming out looking confident and fizzing passes into our front men. Obviously, it's, it's it's sad news to see today that he's you know, broken his collarbone. I think literally in the last action of the game, as Koulibaly <laughs> sort of dived into him, um, and now he's out for six weeks. Um, how would you look to solve the centre back issue over the festive period? And I, I think you see where I'm leading you here. Or do you expect to to see the return of uh, last night's uh, um, deputant uh, right back? I mean, he's one of the best defenders in the world, right? What should we be nervous about? No, absolutely, yeah. But I, mean, I, I don't see any other solution. I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to are you going to trust uh, Master Center Phillips? In fact, Phillips, you know, the, the, the Phillips has a, apparently a hamstring academy injury in the academy is from you know, playing in the under twenty threes as well. So there's not a lot of depth there. I guess in a pinch you could maybe use Fabinho in a center back, but I, I think if we protect Lovren enough from in front, behind, and to his left, he could do a job. Um, where I'm concerned is if also if Lovren's injured, Gomez is injured, um, and, and you and then you're stuck with and Trent Alexander-Arnold is injured, you're stuck with playing James Milner at right back, and I feel like that could make us exposed to teams with pace. Which you know the one place I think where where uh, United might be able to hurt us is getting Martial into space against James Milner with Dejan Lovren there to cover. That is the one thing, or, or Marcus Rashford in that same kind of situation. If, if it's Lingard in those spots, then I'm not afraid because I think Lingard's kind of crap. But um, those are the those are the situations that would give me concern and pause. Otherwise, I think the situ. Otherwise, I think I, I don't see another solution other than playing Fabinho at right back, and I'd really not want to do that. Um, I don't think the Klopp probably wants to either, too, because we saw you know less on, on against Bournemouth with uh, starting both Milner and Fabinho. You'd assume that because Fabinho plays right back for the for Brazil, in fact, he he doesn't really ever play center central midfield for Brazil. He pretty much he only uses a right back. Um, you'd assume that that would be just the right slot in, and you'd use the you know, the midfield of uh, Milner, Keita, and Wijnaldum, which he which you know worked to such great effect in the opening of the season. But uh, Klopp uh, went the other way and used Fabinho, you know, in the in the center of midfield and played uh, Milner right back. So I assume that if Trent's injured, that's the way that's going to go. But I, I just don't see who else you can physically play there besides Lovren because I'm not going to bring up an academy kid particularly against United that's absolutely a Lovren start but even then against other teams in the Premier League it's a big jump from the under 23s to playing against you know let's just say Newcastle to get playing against Solomon Rondon he's gonna he's a, a much stronger proposition than any player in the under 23s in uh you know the Premier League too no, I think yeah, you're right. It's but it is probably going to be an extended period of Dejan now, um, and I guess we just sort, sort, sort of had to rely on, in the fact that obviously he is a good defender at his at his best and most focused, and, and of course uh, it does appear being alongside Van Dyke and in front of Allison does have its benefits. So hopefully that some of that will will rub off on him. But we, I, I thought we saw last night as well. But there's potentially going to be an increase in sort of individual errors here. So um, I mean. It's just a little bit annoying that it's happened at this time of the season because it is such a hectic period, um, and so far we negotiated things so well. But of course, let's see how he does. Um, just to move on to, I mean, I think last night and, and in recent weeks as well, I think people have been there's been three players for me. I, mean, I think across the team there's been some really strong performances, but um, Salah, Virgil Van Dijk, and Allison are three players who gain so much coverage. Salah, we know about, I guess, in terms of 
what he brings to the side. And he looks to be recovering that top form. Uh, but Van Dijk and Allison, um, sort of the dramatic effect they've had um, on Liverpool's defence, and of course I'm including the fullbacks and and Gomez in it to a degree. But just those two, you're spending big on those two, having them come in uh, and seeing what they've produced. I mean, those three there, Salah, Van Dijk, and Allison. Um, would you say now that you know, going forward, those are our you know, main talismans um, on the pitch, and that actually probably the, the three players the oppositions look at as well and go, yeah, they're, they're the ones who we, we, we've got to somehow beat those guys in a fight? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think it goes to that question. Um, I think, you know, City has multiple world-class players. Um, I think we're the only other side that have multiple world-class players. And those, it's those three, right? Um, if you think it, try to, try to draw up in your head any situation within which you have to put out, you know, a 20, 22, a 22 man, uh, 11 v 11 in the world. How, how, how realistically do any of those three players miss being in, uh, in one of those spots? It's, it's, it's a tough call to say no. I mean, Allison, I guess, is is he one of the two best goalkeepers in the world? I think there's maybe an argument that he's not, but Van Dijk yeah. certainly is one of the best four central center back in the world. Salah is certainly one of the best six forwards in the world. So, um, David truly De Gea. World-class. David De Gea made it ahead of Allison, of course, in the combined eleven that we saw on Sky Sports between Neville and Carragher. Somehow, Eric Bailly made it in as well. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's some repu- there's some reputation over. Uh, but I mean, Nemanja Matic and Dejan Nemanja Matic made it in there too, and Matic hasn't been good since <laughs> yeah. Chelsea since Chelsea since Chelsea's last title or second to last title, the last the, the last season with Mourinho. Um, so I got you know it's one of those things where I mean, name a bunch of better players at their positions in the world, you're you're not going to get very far. So um, I guess you know they're getting all that coverage for a good reason. They're truly world class players and it's not exactly as if they're they're playing with a bunch of slouches like the other players on this on, on the Liverpool side we're playing with them are also very 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 good i mean name 10 better left backs in the world than Andy Robertson name 10 better outside forwards in the world than Sadio Mane it, it once again you're going to be hard pressed to be able to do that and i think that's really just speaks to how well we've recruited and how 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 you know we're a proposition again for players who want to win things uh it's mm. it's really nice to see and for the first time in a long time also, it feels like, you know, we've had world-class players, but it feels like we have one world-class player at a time, and then they're going to shuffle off to go find, you know, greener pastures. I don't necessarily know that that's true anymore. No, I think I think you're certainly right there. I think people will be looking at uh, uh, Anfield and Liverpool as a club, just where they they can go, they can grow, they can develop, and actually spend their best years there. And, you know, I mean, that's what we're hoping, you know, based upon these contract extensions, of course, for the front three, um, that they're indicating by doing that, and I think you're yeah, given sort of the success that we had last season and the success they the success they've all had in previous years. I mean, perhaps they would have moved you know, moved on already or, or had their heads turned, and it looks as though you know they're they're very happy where they are and defensively as well. I mean, look, uh, the, the, there's not been a better time to be a young defender coming into that uh, setup there to learn and you know, not be. Um, sort of you know, thrown under the bus if, if everything does go wrong. Um, I also think psychologically, it's just a, a huge boost having those three. I think people are looking at Van Dyke and Allison especially, and going, "That's yeah, a real partnership there that we could somehow outfight them and actually you know, produce quality that's going to get past them." And, and and with saves like you know last night's and some of the big ones you've seen in recent weeks from Allison, um, I, I do wonder how that's playing in the minds of other attackers in the league. So. Coming on to the United game, then, I think we already talked a little bit about how some concerns about how we're going to set up a little bit you know, with Dejan and maybe 
um, Milner just having to play due to injuries. Um, Musa in the earlier part of the pod, obviously, you talked about you know, expect United to come. He expects them to be very defensive, very dour in their approach, and, and just try and frustrate us like they like they did last time uh, in, the, in this fixture. Um, how would you expect us to try and tackle that? Because of course we were, uh, you know, frustrated last time round. So I think we need to be patient, but I also think there's something about this year's United side that just wasn't there last year, which is they're frail defensively. Um, De Gea has had more than his fair share of uh, moments that you don't associate to David De Gea, and it, it's been happening to him since the World Cup. You have to question whether or not his head right now is uh, where his head is as a keeper. Um, whether or not he's actually particularly happy because, you know, Spain had quite a bit of turmoil in the world, their World Cup camp and it, it led to De Gea not playing well. I don't know if you can link the two. But then United, I mean, they're a constant soap opera right now with Jose and, you know, De Gea is, I guess, seemingly the one player who seems to escape the, the wrath of the media in this, but he, but he hasn't been good this season. And if you take a look, I mean, look at the amount of goals United surrendering. Uh, last season, they were very, very, very difficult to score on. It's December, and they've already allowed two – I mean, there are two fewer goals surrendered in now than they had all of last season. So there's nothing to suggest that even if they do uh, park the bus and, you know, Mourinho takes up his role as the Portuguese Pulis, that he'll be effective at actually doing it because this this United side just hasn't looked good defensively. They haven't looked good in – they haven't looked cohesive at all. And I think he is going to set up defensively. I think that – there would be nothing that Jose wants more than to end Jurgen Klopp's unbeaten start, Liverpool's unbeaten start. He wants that badly, but he's not going to risk anything to do it. He's perfectly fine walking out of there with the point. Yeah, you think so? You think that's actually the case? You think he's going to be sort of looking at it and thinking that it, if he could just stifle us and get a draw, that would be viewed as as a success? I mean, uh, I, I mean, touch upon that, but then also to touch upon, I guess, what you, what you make of United season then? I think it's. I mean, I, I just don't think they're good. I think it's Mourinho's third season and he's worn thin. And I just don't, I think Mourinho is a spent force in club football. I think that uh, there's too much known about him and his, uh, his ability to alienate his teams for him to really kind of be effective in this again. I expect that the next place he's going is back to his home country to manage the national team or taking on, you know, mm. some, some other, some other role. I um, mean, assume maybe Tuchel fails at PSG. I could see Mourinho going there where he doesn't have to even worry about a domestic league and only has to worry about the champions league. But I, I just feel like he is kind of a spent force, and I, I just I just don't think that there's a lot going right there. I think some of it's the players. I think some of it's the manager. I think you know it all falls back onto uh, Ed Woodward and his desire to only buy names mm-hmm. and not listen to his managers and buy actually cohesive pieces that fit the part. Because I mean, look at the look at the midfielders United have who have bought um, Pogba and or have around Pogba and or Herrera. Juan Mata, Nemanja Matic, and Fred. There's not a lot there that fits together, right? And outside Pogba, there's absolutely no pace. And outside Pogba and Mata, there's nobody who's actually good with the ball. Mm. So what are they, what are they building? I'm not even considering Marwan Fellaini there too, because we know what Marwan Fellaini is. He's just a guy you put up there and play high balls to. That said, I fully expect Fellaini to start and them to try to target Lovren. But um. It, it, it's just there. There's no cohesiveness um, in the attacking side. There's no cohesiveness. The players look like they're all miserable. Um, it's it's just not a good season for them. And long may it continue. Yeah, as Musa described, it's sort of the perfect storm of negative factors at, at Old Trafford at the moment. So, 
certainly agree there. Long may it continue, of course. And um, just one consideration, just prior to getting to predictions for you, from yourself, Justin. I mean, um, it's been highlighted that we've played four two three one and um, against some of the lower tier, lower sides in the league, which has allowed us to you know bring the likes of Fabinho in, bring Shaq in. Obviously, we saw um, Naby, Shaq, and Fabinho against Bournemouth. Um, and four three three, we usually seem to revert to that against some of the bigger sides. Um, you know, irrespective of what we, what we may think about that, to be honest. Um, but what would you go for this weekend? And, and would you be tempted to even go, you know, be, be cheeky and go, well, I mean, this is not a good side that we're coming up against here. We can afford to go four two three one. We can afford to put that extra creativity uh, on the pitch and look to blow them away. So I would absolutely go with a four two three one. Um the one thing that I think we need to be clear of, and, and the one player who I think is absolutely essential for us to start is Fabinho, because United's going to play very aerially. Fabinho is our biggest and best in the air midfielder, and I'd like to utilize that to kind of negate whatever they can, because uh, you know the one thing if you if right now playing long ball against Liverpool is just it's it's not going to yield you anything, right? We're we're so dominant in the air with all of our center backs, and that's Lovren included. That's one thing that Lovren does well. Is he's he's decent in the air. Um, he did, you know, everybody's gonna have memories of him getting battered by Lukaku last season, but that's also very much to do with Trent being naive and getting sucked out of position, which is why Rashford's able to score both of those goals. But we're very good in the air, and if you have to just keep humping long balls against us, you're gonna have a long day. I would go with the four-two-three-one because if United's gonna play that stubborn low block, we do need players who can play in between the lines. And they're not gonna they're not gonna want the ball, so the four three three is not gonna work because wh- how are we gonna press a team that doesn't have the ball? No, I completely agree. Actually, I I I would be very tempted to, to go four two three one and actually go the same setup as we went with against uh, against Bournemouth, albeit you know the changes in defence that we have to make uh, through injury. But um, I'm fully I'm fully expecting some you know, really snide approach. Herrera you know, being in, in peak Herrera form, Fellaini of course as well. Yeah. Um, Lukaku suddenly rediscovering, uh, you know, sprinting, and um, I'm sure De Gea is. I, 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 on that last point, I don't think that's going to happen. Lukaku <laughs> looks like he's carrying around, uh, you know, he, he looks like he looks like he's me in December. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he looks like he's in great shape. Let's face it, this guy is an athlete, but he doesn't, yeah. doesn't does not look like he's in, uh, you know, perhaps you know, mobile striker shape, shall we say? I think, I think, I think no, he. he Definitely looks like he's uh, either muscled up or carrying just a few extra pounds. Yeah, no, it, it does appear that way. So, I mean, I'm hoping Van Dyke and and the rest of the team make light work of it, to be honest. But uh, it, it it is one I, I I can't lie, really do care about this one. Really, really want to get a win over Mourinho. Just just the way in which he's managed to negotiate his results against us in the past severely irritates me so if we can't take advantage in this season when they are so poor it would certainly be disappointing but um uh, Musa he went for a 2-0 defeat to United which is you know he's trying to make some friends here I mean Justin what what would you be going for this weekend I think we're winning 4-1 4-1 win okay okay 4-1 win uh, and I'm even then stretched on the one um, I, but you know in these games I think that I think that they're going to end up just pumping so many long balls that eventually something will break for him but I, I just don't see how they can. Uh, I don't see how they'll be able to defend, uh, defend us. Uh, we looked like we were creating chances for fun against Napoli. We were doing the same against Bournemouth. I think that United are probably coming into Anfield at at the wrong time for them and at the right time for us. 
Yeah, you know what? I'm actually going to go with that as well because I don't, I don't go ballsy enough on this pod. So actually, I'm going to go for a four-one win as well. But I'm, I'm, that fourth goal will really be the, the icing on the cake, sort of injury time plus um, Fergie time, of course, uh, to get that icing on the cake in this game. But I, I, I think it's about time we give these guys a uh, a hiding. So um, yeah, certainly looking yeah. forward to that. But anyway, Justin, thanks so much for helping me sort of preview uh, the the Liverpool side of things coming into this game. It's Looking very rosy for us at the moment, of course. And just before we do go, did you have anything that you wanted to to plug? No, I'm not doing anything. So I'm just going to then say, uh, you know, if we're going to get the injury time goal, I want to see a Desena special. A Desena special? Who, who from? Uh, Deja? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think who would be the best to do it. Um, Adam Lallana. Adam Lallana, yeah. Maybe that, but I, I mean, if, if someone does have to come off the bench and get an a nice sort of icing on the cake goal. Maybe Divock Origi could get another magical goal for his highlight reel, yeah. let's face it. But um, yeah, anyway, thanks so much again for helping us preview the game. And uh, thanks again to Musa earlier on. Some some really great insight on on United and all the struggles they're going through this season. It's really oh, it's, it's so terrible, isn't it, guys? But uh, anyway, thanks so much for listening. And um, we'll, we'll be back again next week as this uh, hectic December period uh, uh, continues. So yeah, thanks so much for listening, guys. And we'll, and we'll be back again soon. Podcast Network.